As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, today is the 24th episode of A Moment of True Decolonization, our daily podcast of the Funambulist while being in confinement. And uh, my guest is Mena Hara, who's an Egyptian Nubian architect and researcher and a visiting spatial justice fellow at the University of Oregon. She's a third generation displaced Fadisha Nubian. Uh, her research interests include the question of gender, space, territory, and displacement. And today we will go to Nubia with her, which I realize is, uh, is uh, quite nice since it's our fourth episode in a row on the African continent after Somalia, South Africa, and, uh, and Kenya. So uh, this was coincidental, but I, I like it. <laughs> Hi, Mena. Hi, hello. Thank you very much for this invitation. What a good idea during this time. Um, I was, uh, I'm, thank you for inviting me to talk about the, the Nubian issue. To talk about a moment of true decolonization, my mind goes back um, a few years to the year my father died and me going back to our settlement to pay condolences to his, um, to his aunt, who is the uh, matriarch of our family by now. But before going there, I will assume that nobody knows what it has happened uh, in Nubian land and what has happened to Nubians uh, during the 20th century. And this is by design, not me calling you all ignorant. It was by design from the Egyptian state that the narrative keeps um, the dam in center stage and the monuments and heritage in center stage. So uh, let me tell you what happened to Nubians during the 19th the late 19th and early 20th century. The Egyptian state decided to build all these damming projects and ha- for, economic pro- for economic purposes. Uh, up until, um, of course, this was under the English colonization, up until um, Abdel Nasser's government, they then in which he decided that they needed a new pyramid. They needed this new large high dam that's going to modernize Egypt and industrialize it. And Nubians then were deemed displaceable. Nubians then were seen as a an acceptable sacrifice for that. This I would take back to a long history of 
racism, but also to the to issues with the Arab nationalism and to issues with um, socialist tendencies in Egypt then that could not deal with questions of ethnicity. It was supposed to be one Egypt, it was supposed to be modern, it was supposed to be one culture, while these kinds of strands of uh, ethnicity were seen almost as a um, a fringe that doesn't make sense and needs to be included. And it's it's mentioned in the liter- literature and it's Abdel Nasser is, is quoted saying that we need to bring Nubians and modernize them. And for me, it almost feels like it's, um, it's bringing Nubians in and dissolving what is Nubian into one large Arab-Egyptian identity. But this was translated into a built environment in which Nubians were displaced after the high dam was built and it has submerged all the Nubian land in Egypt and 26 um, uh, train stations in Sudan in Wadi Halfa. So all, almost all Fadicha and almost and a bunch of the Mahas Nubian land was submerged. Um, and Nubians had to dis- be displaced into state-built um, settlements. And let me take you to the state-built settlements in Egypt. The story in Sudan is a bit different, but uh, the story I'm telling today is about the state-built settlements in Egypt. And in the state, and these in these settlements, it was planned. It was linear. It was a centralized. With centralized services, Nubians were told that they are going to the new paradise, and there is this um, um, famous Nubian children's rhyme, say saying that how they told us this is going to be a paradise, it turns out to be hell. So we were used to sing that when we were children. So um, Nubians were displaced into this big settlement that was deemed or called New Nubia by the state. It was actually referred to as Tahir. We still refer to this. We call, we say we, we are from or we live in a Tahgir and the word Tahgir in Arabic means the place of displacement. You stop your you stop a, a, a microbus and ask them if they're going to the Tahgir. So it's the the rejection of it being so has permeated the everyday language and the rejection of it being new Nubia. Although we still call our old land old Nubia, Nubal Adima, but the new Nubia is not, has never appeared. The Nubia we have now is called Tahkir. Uh, the the state has given people houses and Actually, they never called them houses. They were often referred to as dwelling units. That dwelling, that dwelling units here are a big um, hero or a big, um, a big uh, factor in my story because uh, these dwelling units were uh, has vic- the, by design through their architecture has victimized one of the most. Um, important operations in Nubian life, which is the Nubian house. The Nubian house that was the center of life and that was the place of origin. The, Of course, the dwelling was this small, modern, 
a functional dwelling that had um, the bare necessities for a biological life, a place to sleep, a place to, to cook, a place to go to the bathroom, and, and places for animals as an economic function. And then there were around 100, a bit more at some cases, there were different, um, different models, but there, there were three models and there were in av on average 100 meters square. Compared to the original Nubian house that was between 500 to 2,000 meters square for the same amount of people. Because the Nubian house was never a dwelling. The Nubian house was a center of so many activities. So these dwelling units uh, were, in my opinion, a place of disposition, especially for Nubian women. And I will tell a bit of this story, especially why later. Then the dwelling design, when you, you, you read the interviews from architects and from planners from that time who, who were involved in it, they would say, we tried to make something modern and something um, uh, functional, but keeping Nubian tradition as if, which is an issue we find in architecture, um, in uh, cultural appropriation in architecture, in which people see the surface in a certain culture and a certain, a certain building tradition and regenerate re, uh, it somewhere and think this is, this is, what architecture, this is what Nubian architecture is, as if, if you add a small courtyard in a house, that makes it Nubian. Uh, but what happened then is that this dwelling was rejected, and it was rejected by many means. It was rejected by means of rebuilding so people started re rebuilding in empty lands and it helped that the state did not finish building the dwellings and people went it was a disaster of course but eventually people went in and the 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 quote from our elderlies would be if we have five families only one of them would have a house because the building was not, it was such a hasty operation they just wanted it to finish on time for PR reasons and you know for visible for for its uh, because it was televised all over the world. They just wanted Nubians to disappear, go there and be dis be resettled, displaced, be displaced and resettled very quickly. So what happened is that people went in and did not find houses and started to build. They invested a lot of money to build these houses. This is an important institution in Nubian life. So the the most of the 60s, this, the last displacement was, the last house displaced was in 1964, if I recall. It was 63, the last one all until the mid of the 70s, Nubians are building, just ongoing building, uh, trying to build that Nubian house that was lost. The other thing is the whole, the, so many changes, almost no dwelling unit is stayed as, as it was designed. Everything had a different kind of intervention in it because none of these dwelling units has represented what Nubian life should be or the performance of a Nubian life. So people have have 
had had so many additions in it and many of these additions were also transgressions especially to the street so nubians have extended their houses outside to the street they have extended extended mastabas these seating seatings outside the streets and women have spearheaded have spearheaded that that um, effort to get their house into the outside instead of them being um being uh, confined into this dwelling unit um, that has made them made it that all their powers that they had in that big um, house that was the center of the political life and that was the center of the social life and the, the maker of the social life in in their original um, villages that made it impossible to happen in this dwelling the design has made it impossible to happen in this dwelling unit they have extended the, these houses all across to the 70s and the Nubian house then has developed itself out of this dwelling. Uh, so I grew up in a Nubian house that has emerged out of this kind of dwelling. And uh, through its extensions and through its transgressions. And when I always, when I often refer to a Nubian house, I, in my mind, the back of my mind, I see... An elderly woman sitting in front of it. I cannot separate the Nubian house from Nubian woman and Nubian womanhood, and because it was a place in which all these powers of womanhood ha has um, came to came to appear. And Nubians like myself who traveled between the city and the settlement would know, would recognize that we used to travel between two gender contracts. We lived in cities and we were called by our father's name. Yeah, but, but we went back and then get called by our mother's name in our matrilineal culture. And now when I go back uh, to my village with my daughter, then they start calling her by my name. And I understand how men feel getting people taking their names. I felt invincible. I felt like I will never die. My name is going to stay forever because my daughter and her daughter and her daughter and my name is going to always be there. It's a, such a such a different gender contract and we we keep traveling in and out of it just by going into the village and coming out of it. So over these 50 years of displacement, the house still was running against not only its displacement, but it's the displacement into patriarchy and capitalism. So in my work, I try to write the history of this, these kind of losses and I see it losing and I see the house being um, stripped out of its powers again and again, and with it the Nubian woman being stripped out of her powers uh, by being displaced epistemically into, into, um, uh, into a place of patriarchy and into a system of capitalism. And then uh, that sobering moment two or three years ago happened when I went back, not for my research, but because my father had died. And after his burial in Cairo, as he died in Cairo, I was obligated as 
any Nubian is, to go offer my condolences to his grand aunt. She is the, the matriarch of the family now, as her sister, my father's mother, has died. So we all owe her that. They, these women have raised us and we love them so much and they, uh, as Nubian women, deserve or they they are owed in tradition to be the ones who receive these condolences. And I went in there and I sat next to her and I spent a couple, two days with her. And on the second day, one of my relatives came in and she stood. She she was so sad um, at that uh, because of my father's passing. These women have raised. These are all their children. They the the kids raising or children raising operation is such a community operation. So she was very sad. But suddenly I saw her stand up angrily at our um, distant cousin and tell him, "Where were you when my son died?" And referring to my father, nobody came to my house. You had your operation, you had your, um, um, that's it. there were like a symbolic um, a ceremony for my father in the mosque. You had your ceremony in the mosque and not in my house. So where did you, where did you go? Where is my right? My son has died and nobody came to my house. My son has died and my house was empty. So at that moment, he was very embarrassed and telling her, yeah, but everybody came to the mosque and they were all men. And she said, so what? Men should come to my house. And then he started to be very embarrassed and apologetic and telling her, we will come and I'll tell everybody that you are mad. I'll tell everybody that you're angry at us. And then he left. And at that moment, she started talking to me and she said, this is not right. If he dies, they should come to his, the house that fed him, the house that cared for him. And she started airing her anger to me. And at that moment, I, w I felt a slap to my face. I had accepted that my father's funeral or my father's ceremony in the village, the symbolic one, is going to go to the mosque. <clears throat> it's a part of the change. It, all these traditions that used to have have dwindled bit by bit during within the system, and I have been I have been witnessing them, and I almost gave up, or not gave up. I just thought this is what is happening, and I'm just going to try to document it and at least document what what has been and what is the Nubian gender contract and what is the social contract has been before and how it's changing. But at that moment, I discovered that, well, the house is not going to go down silently. This change is not just going to happen. Somebody's going to stand there and fight for the Nubian house and its right to be the center of the social happenings. It's right to be the center of the beginning and the end of life. And then I felt a big shame in my role as a researcher who have promised myself to be not to be distant and I'm not going to be that kind of person who looks from the outside and tries to I'm I am a Nubian woman with all my bias trying to write a Nubian voice 
But then, what am I doing here? Am I just writing a Nubian voice? Here, here is the Nubian voice that is actually fighting for it not to go away. And it was such a sobering moment to me. And, and when I was thinking about um, your, the question you have asked me, what is a, a moment of true decolonization, I was thinking, well, that was a moment of true, true fight and decolonization. At that moment, you see the frictions between a new system and then that, was, um, that has came about, this new patriarchal system, and a bit the, the complicity of Nubian men with that system. And then this Nubian woman in her late 80s refusing to give up her house and the house's right and i am here just trying to write it down and not doing the same and not even knowing how to do the same and thinking about how i was going to answer your question i was thinking well this this talk would be the best the best way to describe this talk is the Nubian house refuses to go uh, out silently, or the Nubian house won't go out silently. Great. Thank you so much, Mena. It was very powerful, and I'm happy to sort of announce that uh, you will have a, a similar text um, in our July and August, July August issue, so people can uh, look forward to it as well. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for sharing uh, those, uh, for sharing that with us. And um, best of luck with uh, with where you are now for the rest of the the confinement. Thanks. Thank you. That's all for today. Find us tomorrow again for a new episode as part of this daily podcast series. And if you're a subscriber to The Phenomenalist, remember that you have access to every single article we published in the past in their online version on our website. Thank you very much and take care.